Naomi Hutsovikova is a passionate and talented ancestral cook, a food story discoverer, and an amazing photographer. She has lived and cooked up Slovakian food culture for 17 years now, and we're grateful to her for sharing so much of its uniqueness with us. In this episode, we open up the rich world that is Slovakian food. Naomi explains what it is and importantly why it is like that. You'll get a history lesson via our talk of ferments, bread and fats, and you'll get to know two simple dishes that represent Slovakian food that you'll want to cook up in your kitchens right away. Plum brandy, deep fried treats, 20 litre vats of sauerkraut, bone soups, offal sausages, it's all here. Your mouth will be watering before the end of this one. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. I am flying solo in terms of hosting today. Andrea is with us in spirit, but I have a guest. Hello, Naomi. Thank you for Hello. coming. Hello. Glad to so be we here. Talked, we talked to Naomi previously on episode 23. She lives in Slovakia and we did an episode together focusing on traditional Slovakian pig butchery, which was absolutely fascinating. So go back and have a listen to that one if you haven't. Um, I wanted to get Naomi back on the podcast podcast because in that previous episode we touched briefly on traditional Slovakian dishes and they just sound amazing and if you go to Naomi's blog which we'll link you'll see how many just gorgeous looking peasant food style warming dishes there are and so in this episode we are going to focus in on the traditional foods of Slovakia and talk about some dishes and hopefully make you hungry. So before we start, I just want to say thank you to the patrons who are supporting the podcast. If you're interested in supporting us and getting um, back the goodies that Andrea and I produce, head over to patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast. Okay, so Naomi, let me ask you in in true Ancestral Kitchen podcaster, what was the last thing you ate? Uh, Well, I didn't manage to eat breakfast yet. So the last thing I had was dinner last night. And it was actually in preparation for this this, uh, podcast. So I made the lard crackling spread and uh, get a very simple supper. We have a we have a busy day of uh, music lessons and things. So I came back late. So I managed to steam some broccoli and throw some sesame seeds on it, uh, roasted, toasted sesame seeds, and uh, some sourdough bread with crackling spread. And that was it. <laughs> that sounds delicious. So Naomi's talking about the crackling spread because what we're going to do is after we finish recording, 
we're going to head over to the Patreon feed and we're going to film together Naomi cooking up some Slovakian goodies in her kitchen. So that's what she was making the crackling spread for. I know because I've made that myself based on some advice you gave me that it's absolutely delicious. Um, and also, I love sesame seeds with broccoli as well. I've tried that before and the two flavours seem to go really nicely, don't they? It's something that my mom always did. I broccoli she, she would she would often put like a squeeze of lemon on it I didn't do that but um and like okay. an olive oil instead of butter and yeah nice nice the broccoli is just coming back into season here you've missed it yeah I I bought it um there's a farm nearby that I can buy produce from I don't think it's or it's not organic but it is local mm. and fresh so he, he just opens up twice a week to to sell produce and I, I got Lovely. something there. I really miss broccoli when I don't have it. I just, like, for the rest of the, the the summer, I'm, I enjoy all the other produce, but when the broccoli comes back, I have a little celebration inside. Broccoli's back. Yay. Yeah, but I, I like cooked broccoli. I've never been a fan of raw broccoli. You know, there'd be like a vegetable platter with broccoli on it. I'm like, meh. Mm. But uh, cauliflower is okay raw, but not not a fan of raw broccoli, but I do love it like a creamy broccoli soup. Mm, so good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, so your music lessons, what we um, maybe listeners, if they didn't listen to the previous episode, don't know is that you have four children. So you are a very busy mum and also um, blogging and working on food. So there's going to be lots to share and talk about. First of all, um, I think I'm going to ask you a really basic question because not all of us um, have geography as our strongest point. Can you tell us all where Slovakia is so we can understand kind of how it fits into the influences around it? So Slovakia is a small uh, Central European country. Some people are quite quite adamant that they are not Eastern Europe but Central Europe. Um, it's surrounded by, on various sides, Austria, Czech Republic, little piece with Ukraine, Poland, and Hungary. Um, and the it's kind of a long, narrow country. I mean, long is a relative term. It takes maybe, I don't know, to drive from one side to the other is maybe eight hours. Although that is a lot, not all of that is highway. So you get three quarters of the country really quickly and the last part is really slow because there's there's no highway there's you have to slow down to go through little villages and stuff but um, is it really yeah. populated or are there not very many people living there uh, about five million okay okay and the, the the urban centers are not huge like the the biggest city is the capital which is Bratislava and there's I think half a million there so it's it's not a big city and then whereabouts do you live? Do you live in a city or do you live out in the country? I live in a village, uh, maybe 3,000 people, on about an hour from, from Bratislava. And there's, it's actually a great spot because to the south of us, it's flat, <clears throat> as far as you can see. But right behind my house are the Carpathian Hills. And so there's, a, they're not mountains, but they're hilly. And, uh, you know, from... From my door, I can quickly go for a walk in the forest, which is really yeah. Nice. I've I've seen so many pictures on your Instagram of beautiful walks. It's just it's absolutely inspiring scenery. 
<laughs> and that must influence the food a lot, which is where we're going to head. So before we dive into the food, tell everyone why you're in Slovakia, because you're not Slovakian, are you? No, I, I grew up in Canada uh, in a off-the-grid farm <laughs> with uh, uh, my father's from Japan. And I moved here, now it's coming up eight, 18 years at Christmas. And yeah, my, my, met my husband going to university in, in the States and came here. My last semester was in Austria as a, at a study abroad program. And seeing as I was right next door, I came across to see what, what the country was like. And here we've been mostly ever since. Wow. Okay. That's nice. And with your four children now, so you're, you're well and truly after 18 years, nearly you're, it must feel like home to you. Is that right? Uh, it's hard to say because my language is definitely limiting. Mm. And even though, even though many things to me now are normal, I still have, um, not views, but maybe habits or, or ways of interacting socially that are, are quite different than everyone else. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and it's a very, in a village, Slovakia is a very family-based um, society still. <clears throat> in, a, in a city, not so much. There's, you know, lots of people have moved there for work. But in a small village, most people have known each other all their lives, the family, and they have their family right around. So it makes it sometimes a little harder to uh, break into the, break into the, society local local culture yeah I I resonate with that I mean I haven't been in Italy as long as you've been in Slovakia by any means we've been probably been here almost eight years in total my language is reasonable but it's not the language of a native and obviously my husband Rob is English as well so it's it's very difficult to identify where home is and mm. it's always kind of a work in progress because some things show you, like you said, that you, you're actually very different, whereas other times you feel part of it. So it's a big mismatch for me, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and, and Slovaks in particular, or maybe this area of the world, Central Europe, what was once behind the, uh, the Iron Curtain, it can, uh, people, it takes a long time to get to know people. They're kind of... Mm with with friends with relatives with people that they know they're very friendly very loyal very helpful but it takes quite a while to actually meet someone actually it's funny cuz i i work at a restaurant and my my boss is he's slovak but he he worked in the states for over 20 years and mm -hmm. and so and and we have a very and the other people who work there the the front staff we're all very friendly and it's happened actually more on more than one occasion we'll be smiling at people I'll walk past a table and smile just the other day I walked past a table smiled at a customer she turned to her the people she was with and she's like everyone here smiles because it, <laughs> it, it, it is very unusual to smile at a at a stranger here because you've been abroad <laughs> Yeah, because because he the owner's been abroad, and for me yeah. that's just how you interact with with yeah. customers or clients. And I've also actually heard um, read. 
I don't know if it's theory or true that in, in countries where there's a lot of people from different countries, uh, body language is your common, common language. So there's a lot more smiling and, and that kind of, um, body language in common, whereas in countries where there's not so much, uh, multi multiple ethnicities that it's much more language based. So they don't. Yeah, that, that makes sense completely. When I, I remember when I went to Russia, it was, the language was completely alien to me. I didn't speak any of it. And of course, the um, alphabet's completely different. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was like, just unknown to me. And yet that made me realise how important body language was because the people who I was around who didn't speak any English either, I could communicate so much with them using body language. And so I can completely understand how a study you might have read would say that that becomes much more important when there's lots of different people around for sure yeah like for in, in canada and america at least that's what i have the most experience with you you when you meet someone you smile whereas here you know nobody mm-hmm. smiles but it's very it's in a in a village maybe not in the city but in a village um especially with mm-hmm. the older people it's it's a hallmark of good manners to to say good day when you enter a small store yeah. or even passing an older person on the street um, to say, and, and children, like I have a friend who's really strict with her son, like you meet, especially, and the younger person has to greet the older person first. So like mm-hmm. you meet someone and you say good day. That's hallmark of, ma- yeah. of politeness. <laughs> that happens here too. Um, and that was kind of a bit of a shock when I first came here because everyone says, um the day to everyone when they walk in the store like you said mm-hmm. and I've got so used to it that now when I went back to visit England this year, <laughs> I I walked into a shop and I I felt really awkward because the the person who was you know behind the cash desk didn't look at me and say hello and I didn't say hello and I was just like there's something wrong here I need to greet them <laughs> so cold so, so rude yeah, exactly <laughs> weird okay let's um talk about food so Tell us what the ingredients and the techniques and the kind of the farming and the kitchens, what, what epitomizes Slovakian food? Uh, epitomizes, I would say a full belly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Feeling like you've had a really good meal. It's comfort food, peasant food, um, what they could grow. I mean, I was actually... It, thinking about it a little more reading a little more and the the food of the country is so influenced by the politics of of, of its history um okay. I don't know, should i dive so, into that a little bit yeah go yeah no please so so originally slovakia originally at some point uh for many years slovakia was part of the austro-hungarian empire mm-hmm. and and the the slovaks were the peasants and mostly Hungarians were the aristocracy. So there's castles all over the country. It, many people claim that, that Slovakia has the most cap, uh, castles per capita because there really are, there's ruins everywhere. But uh, it was mostly the Hungarians who, were, who lived in them. And, you know, one family would, would be in charge or own a, a huge swath of, of land. 
And when you, when I've gone to maybe an exhibition of a castle ruin, a particularly important one, and there'll be something about the food, which of course is the first thing that I read. And their recipes are a lot of, you know, from the middle ages, right? Lots of meats, lots of spices, you know, those kind of all over much of Europe had a lot of yeah. what would we would think of sweet spices like cinnamon, cloves, mm-hmm. nutmeg, those kinds of things were in savory dishes. And that existed here, but for a Slovak peasant, that was, they didn't have access to any of that. It was much, it was far beyond their re- means. Okay. So the, the Slovaks themselves had, um, there were subsistent farmers. You, a couple chickens, pig, cow, and lots of people, and, and it still works like this, is, is out, just outside of the town, people had kind of little plots. And they would grow various grains, cabbages, potatoes, what have you. Actually, potatoes, it was mostly a grain-based uh, growing. Mm-hmm. And then when potatoes came into the country uh, into the country and started being growing here, they really took off, especially in the kind of mountainous areas or the hilly areas because the soil wasn't as, as good. Okay. Uh, and it was colder. So it's much more suited to to growing. Um, you could get a lot more calorie out of a potato per s- square footage area. Yeah. And yeah. and in the West, uh, of course, they grew potatoes and eat potatoes, but it continued to be more of a grain. They grew. They continued to grow a lot more grains. <clears throat> and was the grains wheat, or was there rye and oats and other kind of grains? Yeah, yeah. Uh, buckwheat, millet, wheat was a big one. Um, barley. I think those were rye. Those were the the main ones. Okay. And okay. Uh, one one lady that I knew there there used to be, you know, in in this town where there is not a single mill, there used to be seven mills. Everyone wow. took took their mills, you know, took their own sacks of grain to to be processed. How long ago was that? When were those seven mills active, and when did they not you know not work anymore? Uh. I th- it, they started well. That's part of the politics. Is they started to mm. to be shut down during communism because they you couldn't have your own business um, and everything was was aggregated during during communism. Okay. When did the when did the communist era start, Slovakia? So well, so there was there's the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Then there was the two mm. world wars. Um, and which in terms of food, you know, a lot of devastation, just infrastructure, land, people, you know, not as many people to, uh, to not as many men, especially to, to harvest and, and farm. So there was quite a stretch when people, people remember being hungry. Um, and so after, after the second world war, basically give or give or take a year um communism took over and throughout its right until until 1989 and throughout that time it it fluctuated in in how strict it was but at the beginning it was quite strict uh and in terms of food and I never really thought about this, but in terms of food, it, taking the time to prepare your food and to enjoy your food was a very bourgeoisie activity. 
you had food became very utilitarian or, or, I mean, the idea from the state anyway, was that food was very utilitarian. So you wanted to, people had to eat in order to function, to have a full belly. So nobody was rebelling. And that was basically it. There was no, no, no thoughts about nutrition, no, no thoughts about, um, quality or, or the taste, you know, of course people wanted food that was tasted good, but there was not really this idea of new, new innovations. A a lot of, a lot of foods were then restricted because of course you couldn't import anything from the West. Yeah. A few, a few imports from, from fellow communist, uh, countries are from the east maybe some curry or something but and and uh, yeah <laughs> so so your so, your husband's parents they they basically experienced that is that the generation and the generation before that yeah and, and my husband my husband was 13 when when it ended so he he remembers this okay. and there was in, in some ways, there was a lot of industrialization that happened when when they took over. So, in and apartment buildings being built, yeah. um, which gave a, people a place to live after the war. But um, so, at, on the one hand, you had kind of maybe what we would consider higher living standards. There's work in factories and and more more food available if you didn't grow it yourself. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there was a lot of problems with food shortages, uh, not having enough people. One effect of communism is that is that you you help the people that you know. And so my husband remembers, I mean, my husband remembers standing in line and waiting, you know, the, the mm-hmm. bread or the meats shipment or the delivery was coming and you went and you lined up and then in order to make sure that you got um, your allotted quota of, of however much. And if you were the not shop owner, they didn't really, if you were the shopkeeper, I guess, um, mm-hmm. of say a vegetable place, you know, you got your, the one shipment of oranges in the winter and you kind of kept them under the counter and mm-hmm. you gave them to your friends and family. Um, yeah. To make sure that they got it, and then everybody else would get it. So the the idea of people having a space where they're growing, you know, those kind of um, more colder type climate vegetables, the cabbages and the potatoes, and potentially having chickens and pigs during that period, could they eat those, or did they have to give those to the state then for it to be redistributed? How did that work? Uh, cows were taken away, which just boggles my mind. <laughs> um, yeah, cows were taken away. Pigs, chickens were not. Um, I don't, maybe there might have been a time when you had to give a certain amount of food or produce, but not, I haven't heard about that okay. much. But it was, it was definitely a sign of rebellion if if you tried to keep your cows and I've heard of you know people who had a couple of cows and they said no I'm not and it was you know they were persecuted for that why did they take the cows away because then they put it in 
central central farms so where my husband grew up behind the village on somebody else's property like so then all the land belonged to everyone so they just said okay I don't know put their finger on a spot I don't know maybe there was water there or something Um, Mm -hmm. it didn't matter who it used to belong to because now it belonged to everyone so they picked a spot built a farm and and in terms of farm it was an industrial farm so it's not you know cows grazing on open pastures yeah. it's buildings where the cow maybe goes outside in a little yard and um and then you had to buy your milk which is just seems so unjust yeah and yeah and the uh and while but also people who lived in apartments i mean it's still even today, there's a lot of villages and grandmas have big gardens, uh, even more so back then, because you had to do those things in order to survive. You, could, you couldn't rely on their being. Partly it, was, partly it was the history of that's what everyone had done, but also you couldn't rely on, on things being in the stores. So survival meant that you had a couple apricot trees or a big garden and you, you process the, the produce or your pigs, chickens. Um, but even people who lived in the city, it's very common that there's around the city, there were little garden areas. So they might or might not, I think probably less in terms of animal husbandry, like pigs and chickens, but mm-hmm. definitely produce. I actually, I remember the first time I saw it, we were driving on the outskirts of the city and I was looking at the side of the hill, like, what is this? Because there were these little kind of shacks, cabins, and I asked my husband, like, are these the slums or something? Like, what is this? He said, no, it's a, it's a garden area. So people on the weekend, you know, Monday to Friday, they worked in their factory. And then on the weekends, they kind of fled to either the hills, the mountains, or or to their garden and gardens. And uh, yeah. And then you hear stories of people even who, you know, did a put pig butchering in their apartment which gosh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you know they would have a pig out in their garden area and they yeah. brought home the animal and then processed it in their little tiny soviet kitchen wow wow okay this episode of ancestral kitchen is brought to you by home folk roots Home Folk Roots is an online membership community dedicated to living a simple life that is in harmony with the seasons. Members take on gentle challenges complete with ebooks and printables to help them stay focused on home and nature. They connect in a private forum and have the opportunity to participate in old-fashioned mail swaps and letter writing. Once a month, they get together for a live chat. At Home Folk Roots, they grow food, cook from scratch, use herbs for healing, take walks in nature, forage, craft, connect with their local communities and share adventures in a judgment-free zone. They share photos, struggles and successes to celebrate and encourage each other in an authentic, slow life connected to the earth. Join in spring and take 15% off the season's membership. Visit homespunseasonalliving.com forward slash AKP to learn more and join. The link's in the show notes. Um, what about ferments? Because so many of the dishes that I've seen on your website include sauerkraut. And you said that cabbages were grown. Talk about how ferments were part of 
and have been part of the food culture of Slovakia. So sauerkraut is the, the biggest one for sure. Mm. Um, and, and that was a way of, of both preparing something for the winter that was easy to cook. It was already sliced and you just had to throw it in a soup or a stew or fry it up or something. Um, and, and also a way of preserving it. You had limited ways or limited space to, to keep a cabbage all winter. You know, you have to have certain conditions and, and stuff. Um, uh, cucumbers, small cucumbers are often also fermented here. They don't stay as long in the winter, but um, you, you'll still sometimes find a, a grandma at a little marketplace with her, a jar of, of pickle, of fermented cucumbers. Mm-hmm. And... I remember my father-in-law saying that his mother had kind of an ongoing fermenting crock and she would just throw anything in there, throw it, you know, as stuff became, it started, it started when the produce started and then she would just kind of throw things in there as, as the product, as this gardening season went on and things ripened, but there's not a lot of innovation. You know, now the fermenting is, is sauerkraut with various spices or, or, you know, kimchi or all these, but no, 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 you, sometimes there was a few differences. Um, I've had at one time a lady gave me, she put like little, little green apples in or yellow apples, I guess, in, uh, in the sauerkraut or, but there wasn't a lot of innovation. You just kind of did the same thing. Yes. Cause it was needed to keep that produce and to keep going through the winter, I guess. Yeah, and and food. yeah, and it, it was what was available. And also during communism, innovation was a very capitalist thing to do. It wasn't encouraged at all. Yeah. So yeah, what I think is interesting about the way that countries like Slovakia use um, sauerkraut is the fact that it's put into dishes that are cooked in large amounts, and you know the resurgence of fermented food in um in wealthy countries see sauerkraut as a raw thing that you put on the side of your plate in order to get those probiotics that are still alive and coming across recipes um that have real large amounts of sauerkraut you know the amount of sauerkraut that would take quite a long time for me to produce in and cooked for hours in a stew it it's something that, you know, is such a huge tradition in lots of countries, but it's not something that newcomers to sauerkraut and ferments are at all familiar with. And it's, um, it's I find that really interesting. Yeah, so making sauerkraut here, um, traditionally, you would uh, call your kids, or, you know, your grown kids or family, friends, and the the wooden... I don't, I don't know if there's a word. I don't know if we have an English word for it. The, the, it's like a slicer. It's like a wooden piece of wood with a blade across it. Mm-hmm. Put the cabbage on top in the little wooden square. One person uh, runs it, runs the cabbage back and forth, and it slices it. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, right now, there's signs everywhere where they'll you can buy already cut cabbage. Huh. But I find it a little bit dry. I prefer to do it fresh because by the time they 
I bought it once or twice, but it, by the time, you know, if they do it and then you get it home and then by the time you actually get to it. So it's easier just to, I find it's, it's not so dry to, to do it yourself, yeah. but it is more work. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then, and then you have, a. they have a lot of these, traditionally they were wooden that they used for, especially for things like this, but these troughs, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, then of course they're plastic little tubs and you mix your sauerkraut and, and salt, uh, bay leaves and maybe some allspice and pack it into these pottery crocks and they can get really big and really heavy. The, my mother-in-law would make them in ones that were about 20 liters, which is about 20 quarts. <sighs> And uh, I have a picture somewhere of the twins standing by them, and it, it, they're about the same size. <laughs> and the twins were maybe like four or five. And so this year I'm going to make it. Uh, I'm just waiting for a free weekend. And wow. but I I want to do smaller, like two smaller ones because I don't have a a, a basement that's easily accessible. You have to go down like a little trap door in the floor and carrying 20, 20 yeah, liters of sauerkraut. Is, oh. So the sauerkraut was made once a year for the whole year, by the sound of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Interesting. Now, the um, one of the dishes that you are going to show us on the Patreon video that we will record after we've talked is called Strapachki. And that is an example of using the um, sauerkraut in a cooked dish, isn't it? Can you talk a little bit about strapachki for us? Yeah, so um, it's a very simple dish. I love it. My husband always looks wondering at me, like, why do you like this dish so much? It's definitely not his favorite. But they traditionally, it's made with halushki or a potato dumpling. And they don't have to be potatoes. You can make it with flour as well, but the traditional ways. Potato dumplings are specific, especially in the, um, from the central part of Slovakia, where potatoes were uh, especially revered, grown. And uh, you top up some sauerkraut, you have these halushki, potato, uh, potato gnocchi, or, or spatzel yeah. is kind of dumplings, noodles. And you pan fry it with some sauerkraut and bacon. And the bacon here, you might be able to find sliced bacon, but here you buy bacon in, in a chunk and you cut it. So you can get really nice, nice chunks of bacon instead of these little tiny thin uh, crumbs. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you just pan fry it and make the halushki, pan fry it with some sauerkraut and, and it's good. And, and I saw one time, I also saw it, uh, I used to visit this, nun kitchen or a kitchen of a, a convent and so she was making bigger portions and so she did the same thing but she put it in a in a deeper cookie sheet type thing and and baked it stirred it a couple okay. times and so it was, it was easier to make for a big group so it's just bacon and sauerkraut and these um potato dumplings yeah that's it. And the, the, when you make the dumplings, actually, I'm experimenting a little bit more and like I have to make these more often because it's so easy. 
pasta, I, I love the idea of homemade pasta, but by the time you roll, it's the rolling out yeah. and the cutting and it just takes so much time. Yeah. And this is like, you whip up the dough. It's mostly potatoes grated finely mm-hmm. on the, on the fine, uh, fine holes of a grater, grated potatoes, couple eggs, salt, and enough flour. So it makes a mm, looser than bread, but a little bit stiffer than cake. Yeah. Okay. And, and then they have, uh, I've seen these for, sometimes they're also used for gnocchi or spatzel, but it's, they call it a halushkar in here, a halushkar. And it's, basically a, a thing with holes that then you just pour the dough you put the dough in it and scrape back and forth and the dough just strips down and then you end up with wow. a type of pasta without having to <laughs> do all the work of rolling and cutting yeah, yeah yeah nice and so I'm imagining it tastes kind of um filling because of the potato you know that gives you that really filling and then you've got the bacon which is salty and fatty and what does the sauerkraut give to the dish that cooked sauerkraut how does that change the the potato and and the fat flavors well anytime you cook sauerkraut it mellows out and uh it's not so acidic so I always recommend you know when people say like oh I made sauerkraut because I feel like I should it's healthy and now I don't know what to do with it um I always recommend cooking it because it's easier, especially if you're trying to introduce yourself or kids or spouses, significant others to, uh, to eating sauerkraut. It can be too acidic for, for people just kind of getting used to it. So if you, if you cook it, it, it mellows it and also softens it. And when it's together with, especially the, if you pair it with a carbohydrate like potatoes, it's, um, mm-hmm that also kind of mellows it out and yeah I'm looking forward to seeing you do that so on the video you're going to show us the dumplings and you're going to show us a simpler version where you can just use potato without having to make it into a dumpling is that right uh I kind of forgot about the just potato part okay <laughs> I was <laughs> so we're going to do the dumplings so, I was one. so uh, yeah well not even the proper one. So I experimented with making sourdough dumplings because oh. the halushki they they potato dump they make potato dumplings, but halushki is a broader term that kind of means any kind, and you can also make just flour ones. They often will put it in soup, uh, yeah. and actually, really, to I mean, if if you don't have a halushki maker, um. I've seen women make them and if you're practiced at it, you can get quite quick, but I'm nowhere near that. Is they just put the dough on a on a small cutting board and just cut the dough into the into the boiling water so they kind of slice and flick. Wow. Um okay. and, and someone practiced can get pretty quick at it. I'm I'm not there yet. That, and that's and, just amazing when you see women like that. I mean, that's every culture, whatever it is, whether it's oat cakes or making kind of pasta shapes or making these dumplings, that the women just get so quick at it that yeah. you try and replicate it and you're like, oh, they're all fingers and thumbs. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And it's and and they put this into a lot of soups. I mean Slovaks are big soup eat, soup eaters mm-hmm. and uh and they'll often be these just flour halushki in 
in the in the skin soups. So I was with with the idea of like ancestral kitchen and sourdough mm. and you know like yeah, traditional ways of preparing. I I prepared a few different um, with a few different flours because actually even now if you go to the store there there's never just all purpose flour as as there is in Canada and America. Mm. There's your finely ground and your more kind of rough ground, a coarse ground like a semolina. So yeah. I tried a few, a few different versions. So oh, I'm looking forward to seeing them. I wish I could taste them. <laughs> <laughs> They're good, actually. I was I was impressed. They're not. One of them was. I, I I'm not a very good experimenter because I didn't measure anything. So one I think yeah. is a little more sour. It was more liquidy because I used a freshly ground um, wheat flour, mm-hmm. and that absorbs more. It absorbs more liquid, so I put more liquid in, and but then yeah. it fermented faster so that one has a bit of a sourdough taste but the other two um don't really mm. yeah wow. nice um let's talk about fats briefly because i know having watched how you cook and what you cook with that fats um ancestral fats seem like they're still and you know have been for forever very very important to stacking zinc can you talk a bit about that can I just backpedal because I just remembered yeah, something about halushki. Oh yeah, <laughs> so no, the more, halushki, more about the dumplings. <laughs> these potato dumplings. So the what is now considered the Slovak dish, the the quintessential mm-hmm. Slovak dish, is these halushki with um, brinza is a, a cheap a sheep's cheese, uh, basically just mixing potato dumplings, this soft sheep cheese, and of course bacon, and it was, it's from the center of Slovakia where there's a lot of sheep. Originally, they kind of mm-hmm. came from this Romanian area. It's hilly, hilly country, so it's it's very nice for for pasturing sheep. And in Romania, the word brinza brinza applies to many different kinds of of either cheese or soft soft cheese. I forget which, but in Slovakia, it just refers to this one specific type of cheese, and I describe it to people as a soft feta. So it it's okay. salty. It tastes like feta, except it's a soft cheese. And it was actually a, a Czech ethno, ethnographer who came and tasted this and, and kind of declared it the Slovak, um, the Slovak dish. Because the food is so similar to the the, the countries around it. And uh, so what was originally just from central Slovakia is now kind of common all over the country and and is what people so, when, when visitors come here you kind of say okay this is the a Slovak dish so if we wanted to try and make that we'd need the potato dumplings and bacon again and then some sort of soft sheep cheese because I presume then the, the cheese kind of gets mixed in and kind of coats everything yeah yeah um actually what I've done is just taken feta and blended it up with some sour cream ah, great idea okay and yeah and the the it's kind of sharp again it's that mm. sharpness with the yeah. blandness but the fillingness and and kind of like pasta it takes takes on anything any flavor yeah. that you pair it with so nice Okay, we'll we'll come back to some. We've got two dishes there that are very um, that kind of epitomise Slovakian food. We'll come back to some more. Let's 
let's diverge the fat. <laughs> and then yeah. come back to some more dishes. Okay. So fats in Slovakia, um, tr- yeah, traditionally, many, many families had a pig. You made lard. Then with communism, you still had lard, but then a lot of industrial uh, seed oils started being popular. Slovaks love deep frying food. It, I, I mean, the schnitzel is is kind of an Austrian thing, I guess, and it's very, very popular here too, and it has been for a long time. Then during communism, there wasn't as much meat available. It's expensive. <clears throat> People didn't have money, so then they started deep frying cheese, cauliflower. Um, Slovaks right now in the fall, Slovaks love mushroom hunting. And the the parasol, the parasol mushroom is kind of a, it's got a, well, it's named parasol for a reason because it kind of looks like that. It's got this Mm -hmm. wide uh, head uh, flat. And if you talk to anyone, they're like, oh, the best way to eat this is deep fried. And so it's, they call it a triple envelope, Uh, dredge it in flour, then egg, Mm -hmm. and then breadcrumbs, and then fry it, uh, deep fry it. And that is... So this was also a way to make, during communism, it was a way to make a cheaper food like cauliflower quite filling because then you have yeah. the breadcrumbs and it's soaked up with all this oil. And But then it wasn't lard anymore so much. When did it uh, stop being lard? Um, I would say people used lard if they had their own homemade lard. Uh, but then if they bought it, they would buy like during communism at some point i'm not sure what then it was cheaper to buy industrial seed oils as the country as a whole industrialized and farming agriculture was was uh centralized Uh, Mm. and then there was kind of you know the same health thing that oh lard's not good for you it's not healthy so when i first came here or not even first came here until a couple years ago, I I get there's a farmer. He works at a factory, but he keeps you know a hobby farmer. He has yeah. a, a mangalnitsa, I think, are a, a um, heritage Hungarian breed of of pig. Okay. And he butchers. He has a couple of them. He butchers in the the fall. And I used to be able to get a big five kilo container with, with, uh, full of lard because nobody else wanted it. And the last time, last couple of years I went, I was like, Oh, the five kilo. And he's like, "Mm, maybe, maybe two kilos, maybe three. Cause there was a lot more people who wanted it. Okay. So it's kind of coming back more there. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. The butchering, um, we talked about that a lot in the um, episode 23, where we focused on the butchering. And there's so much in there about the dishes that come out of the butchering. We're using the whole pig. Um, so do go back and, and listen to that if you haven't, because there are some really, really young dishes in that as well. And it's fascinating to hear you know, how the day progresses with butchering. So now you're able to to buy lard or or make it yourself still and bacon Um, and do people in the cities are they starting to use lard again do you think or 
how how what's the situation now with the fats? Mm, it's hard to say exactly because well, recently in the last couple of months, for example, butter has gotten astronomically expensive, mm. and a lard was also um this whole time if you went to a a, a very common hmm, it's not really a dish but a very common the kind of snack food was bread with lard and onions yeah and uh and actually one time i had our, our restaurant is kind of the restaurant where i work is a little bit we don't really have classic Slovak food, but this older couple came in and you could tell they were just kind of nursing their cup of wine, I think mean, a glass of wine or two. And they looked at our menu and they said, well, do you have any bread with lard and, and mushrooms? And the waitress came to me and she kind of was rolling her eyes like, these people want this old Slovak food and we're, uh, let's say a pescatarian restaurant. We don't serve any meat. Uh, but I did have some homemade, and I said, like, uh, I, I don't have any, I don't have any lard. So, and then I said, wait, in the fridge, I had this home, some, the owner had a jar of homemade goose fat. And actually that's also very popular, mm -hmm. homemade goose fat. And so we had this amazing bread. Uh, I had, it was like this amazing bread. I slicedly thinned, uh, slicedly, uh, thinly sliced. <laughs> I think I had some red onions or something with this okay. homemade goose fat and and some like flaky sea salt or something and it was mm -hmm. it was like a, a upscale version of the original uh but yes i that actually reminds me so goose especially this time of year so october november mm -hmm. um it, especially in certain areas there's a lot of goose and they also have a, an animal that's a goose duck hybrid. And yeah, they call it a, a goose duck in Slovak. <laughs> and I think it, it's kind of supposed to combine the, the fat and the a little bit more meat. A goose doesn't actually have that much meat. Okay. It's supposed to have a little bit more meat, but still a lot of fat. And nice. so both, both geese, ducks, and this hybrid are... Um, are also popular and they my mother-in-law has a roasting pan it's a ceramic roasting pan and at the end there's a spout so she can she roasts it and during the roast she can pour off the fat very conveniently oh, the spout. and and that gets used a lot for 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 things as well for making spreads um uh yeah i'd say probably less for cooking like we would think of frying and sauteing but i would mm -hmm. say she would use it more for on top of bread or to mix together in a spread um instead of like we would use mayo or something and yeah i see use this goose lard that's what i think is interesting about the lard crackling spreads you're going to show us one of those and i've made um a couple of, in my kitchen that it actually Almost is like having a mayo spread. That's the sensation I got when I made yeah. it. I made mine with with some onions and garlic that I fried in lard, and then I put my leftover cracklings from lard rendering in, and then I put some hard boiled eggs in and whisked it all up in the food processor. And it felt like an egg mayonnaise. You know, it has that kind of unctuousness mm -hmm. of the of the fat from the lard, not the mayo, and and it's absolutely perfect for spreading. 
reading. Yeah, and it and it binds it together so it, it's yeah. not falling apart everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So originally that you said that Slovakians are really into deep frying. Would that have originally all been done in, in lard? Originally, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Nice. And do you deep fry in your house still? Very little. My husband does. So I I refuse to make schnitzel or anything that requires dipping, taking a piece of something and touching it three times to then there's <laughs> I I personally don't make it not so much because I have any um nutrition or health ideas about it but because mm. there's flour when I make it there's flour everywhere and bread crumbs <laughs> everywhere and yeah, the yeah. fat like is I I we do make it in lard and yeah. uh, then there's fat splattered everywhere and the smell yeah, permeates the house but of course it's a it's also very they make it especially for for Sundays and any celebration 99% of the time it's it the, the meal is with schnitzel it's a very kind of I mean fat was a very precious thing in the past so um special yeah you could you know you made it when you slaughtered an animal or I've seen presses for making in a, in a Slovak village presses for oh they they did a lot of um flax and this ah, okay. this press of how they they made flax oil was astounding. It was this huge room, in kind of like a barn sort of thing, with these massive logs. And they had a horse that walked in a circle. And in the middle of all this huge area, that as he walked in the circle, it would press two logs together, and then the the oil would drip from the flax seeds um, in the middle. So it was. And when I saw this, I thought, gosh, you know making making oil was not an easy simple process it really took some dedication both because you have to to grow the plant then harvest the seeds then you often have to you know um separate you know the seeds from if they have a hull or the chaff or Mm. and then you have to press it and yeah it requires you know without machinery acquires it requires uh quite a bit of pressure yeah, so, it must be astounding when you you know when you see that because just diving into ancestral techniques in a modern kitchen, you know I can make my lard with a slow cooker and mm-hmm. I can just not really pay much attention to it just in little bits during the day and I get it from my farmer who's the one who grows the pig and looks after that pig and even that brings that small act brings me much closer to you know what the animal's given and the work that's gone into it. And, you know, I'm making sure I'm using the crackings and, and we love using the lard. But to go back further to where, you know, there would have been a small holder with the animals having to look after that animal all the time or growing flax and harvesting it and separating it and using a horse with bits of, you know, tree that they've chopped up specially and set up. It's just astounding. And you understand well, why it was so precious, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't exactly bits of tree. It's like the log, <laughs> like these massive logs. I don't know what, what the, diet, but it's, yeah, you know, like I could maybe put my arm around it wow. and you've got like two or three of them on a, on a cog wheel. Gosh. Did they eat the flax oil? Did they use it for some sort of textile thing? That I'm not completely sure about it. The flax was grown, especially under the mountains. And actually, on on you can find on YouTube. There's a, a 
he was also Czech ethnograph in the thirties, he made a, a video kind of capturing, he realized that the traditional culture was going to quickly mm. um, go. And mm. so he captured on, on video, a lot of these uh, processes and their celebrations and dances and, mm. and the, the way they made linen is just very beautiful and a lot of work. So they would, they had the fields of, of blacks and then these kind of twists when they dried it, they, they would make these sheaves that were kind of these twist and they twisted them. So it, it kind of splays out from the center area. And so then you have these mountains in the background with this field full of twist twisty sheaves and those would dry then you have to soak them in the water and pound them and soak them again I I forget the whole process but um so linen was also used as a fabric in that in that area especially the oil the oil I'm not I think they ate it but I'm not really 100% sure flax was grown um historically in Italy as well and someone I know who lives relatively close to me is starting to um to grow it again um and I I keep meaning to go back and kind of understand how it was used because I know that some oils for example doing my olive oil research that I've done the last year a lot of the um olive oil that went to England before olive oil became popular as a food was um sent to England in order to um lubricate sheep's mm. wool so it could be made into you know, spinning yarn um, because mm. lanolin wasn't enough. Apparently, they used olive oil, and it, it's just interesting how these things kind of link together. You know, there's mm. food and there's cloth and there's you know things to help processes along the way, and it, it it's just amazing that everything had a purpose and there was nothing wasted. You know, everything yeah. had something it was supposed to to help. Um, help create life and all the things needed for life yeah and you didn't you didn't use just all the parts of the animal but also all the parts of the plant yeah Yeah, completely when i first heard allison talking about boza the fermented drink made of millet that's a household name in turkey i felt as if i was being transported back to a bazaar in the ottoman empire or traveling the silk road on the back of a camel and i knew i wanted to taste it Boza is fizzy, sweet, tart, and it's full of probiotics. You can drop it into your smoothies, spoon it on top of your breakfast, or drink it in the traditional way they still do in Istanbul, topped with cinnamon and toasted chickpeas. Fermented millet drinks were first made in that region of Europe in the 8th century BC, and as with all of Allison's courses, she's gone above and beyond in research and experimentation and testing on Rob and Gabe and given us an easy way to recreate the goodness in our own homes. If you'd like a fun and tasty way to get more probiotics into your life, bring her into your kitchen and have her walk you through how to bring this ancestral dairy-free, gluten-free fermentation recipe with her amazing Boza video course. Head to www.ancestralkitchen.com slash Boza, B-O-Z-A, to check out the video course. And happy fermentation. Let's talk about 
some more food. So tell us something. You talked about kind of um, special days and, you know, Christmas and celebrations. There would always be these deep fried things. Tell us some more about like what um, would be a traditional, for example, Sunday dish for Slovakian or traditional um, festivity dish. So Sunday lunch is a really big thing here. It's, uh, and I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it started before communism, but certainly, I mean, it's traditionally a very religious culture. So Sunday would have been religiously significant, Mm. but especially during communism, during the work week, you did not have time to sit around much as a family. The, when the factories started, then they had, um, you know, they provided foods in cafeterias. Uh, so it's, it's still now it's common that during the work week, you have your lunch. Nobody takes lunch to work or very few people take lunch to work. That would be kind of a modern thing. It's more cafeterias or a lot of these, call them buffets, buffets, where they serve kind of cafeteria style. So Sunday lunch was um, really a time. It's such a, a family oriented culture. And so that was a day to be together with your family. And again, not until recently, not a lot of innovation. Very classical. You have a bone soup, uh, often chicken, not necessarily. Uh, then roast chicken or pork could be baked or, or deep fried schnitzel, mm-hmm. potatoes or rice. And then uh, with served together with the main meal, not as a dessert. Uh, canned fruit. Uh, often it's quite, especially this part of Slovakia is quite warm, so you can have apricots and plums and cherries, etc. And yeah, and there's not. I remember talking to even now talking to a, a student. You know, we were talking about food and blah blah blah. She was my kid's age, and I said, okay, what about you know Sunday lunch? What do you have? Okay, it's a little bit limited because her her mother is celiac, but she said, yeah, we have, we have, uh, chicken and rice. I was like, anything other than chicken rice, mm, sometimes potatoes. <laughs> and that was, that was every Sunday it's roasted chicken with rice. And, and a lot of families are, are like that. Is that what you do? No. <laughs> what do you do? Uh, I do, I do try and make a bone, not in the super hot months, because in the mm. summer, it's just too hot to have a a pot of bones bubbling away on the stove. But um, as it gets cooler, then uh, some kind of bone or collection of bones, uh, chicken, beef, pork, doesn't really matter. Mm. And they're raw. They are not in, 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 Online, when you find um, advice for making for making broths or stocks, it always says, you know, roast them first. Yeah. This is no, 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 no. This is a Slovak will look at you like you're crazy if you roast them first. <laughs> if I take, I I started taking, you know, bones from a goose or a, a turkey to to make soup with, and they're like, "What are you doing? <laughs> you don't make soup from that." Um, and the it's a very it's not the kind of broth that gels it's much more watery it cooks maybe three four hours and you want something with a little bit of fat 
um, to give it more flavor. And then you put in whole carrots, on, um, the parsley root, mm -hmm. maybe odds and ends of other things for flavor. And then they serve it with these very thin egg noodles. And you take out the whole carrot or pars and parsley root and chop, mm -hmm. it, chop it up when it's already cooked. And and put it in the soup bowl and then ladle the, the broth over top, ideally a little fresh parsley on top. And so I do do that. Um, I For Sunday, I will often do some kind of meat, but it really varies. When my husband feels like it, he will make schnitzel, but that is his domain, not mine. <laughs> okay. And, and it's also that what we were talking about, the practice in your hands, he, he, uh, actually his, the high school system here, he went to a vocational high school for cooking. And so he just, we, one time we did cheese together and his cheese envelopes, as they call them, were uniform, perfectly, <laughs> you know, looked lovely. And mine, I, I did the same thing and they were all kind of lumpy and blotchy. And, <laughs> look nearly as nice. Um, yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard to find meat that I'm satisfied with the sourcing of. Mm -hmm. And so once a year we get uh, a deer, a large deer from a okay. hunter. And, and I always love it when I have that, when I can pull that out of the freezer. And sometimes a roast, sometimes medallions. And yeah. then... Yeah, I, I guess I kind of follow the a similar, often I'll follow similar, then also have like potatoes or rice or some sort of other carbohydrate um, dish. And what about green vegetables and stuff on the side? Is that a traditional thing as well or not? Not really. Vegetables were not a huge, okay. a huge part of, there's lettuces, like my mother-in-law, she would, the the lettuce salad she would make would be like kind of a, a lettuce is common here, but the types of salad that they make from them is somewhat limited. So she, it was actually in like water. It was like a sweet, she put maybe like some sugar and salt in a, in water. And then you like dish and they actually cooked it. There's a soup, which my students have told me is like their most hated soup is <laughs> <laughs> a lettuce soup. It's like a, a creamy milky soup. And then there'd be like lettuce chopped up lettuce and I remember my wow. students say like oh my gosh this is the worst worst dish ever and <laughs> um, what about drinking traditionally with that roast is there wine or is it beer what's the traditional kind of drink that really depends on the area of Slovakia yeah, so okay. in the west and south where it's hotter and flatter there's a big wine lot or big lots of wine it's not it's not that well known outside of Slovakia, but the the wine making kind of artisan wine making has really um, increased. the The town that I work in it's a pretty small town, but all around it are vineyards, and okay. there's so many winemakers there for for such a small area, and or for such a small kind of urban center, mm. uh, and in the beer is popular everywhere and then hard alcohols are 
also popular everywhere, but especially the more north and east you go, um, the more they make it and drink it. Most because especially the landscape's different, or because it's colder. <laughs> it, yeah, so they can't grow grapes, um, yeah. but they can grow, for example, like plums. Plums, plums will grow even where it's fairly um, chilly, and that's Slivovica. It's so anything that ends with an they take the name of the fruit and then they put an itza at the end. So okay. apricot itza brand. I guess it's brandy. They call it burning it. You burn apricots pears um plums what else pretty much any fruit and the smell is incredible plums don't actually plums is the most popular and also probably my least personal favorite um but apricots or pear like you if you have a good homemade one if, if you buy it in the store it's got you know aromas or whatever in it yeah, yeah. Um, but a good homemade one that's kind of cured for a little bit. It's you open up a bottle in the middle of winter and it's the smell of summer. It's the smell of ripe fruit in summer. And then you taste it. Mm. <laughs> it does not taste like ripe fruit in summer. But there is <laughs> <Blows> your wife. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's generally between 50 to 52% alcohol. So Gosh. it's really strong. Wow. Okay. And and they're not maybe some people now as a modern thing would mix it but in general nobody mixes it you just um drink a little shot of it straight and and the important thing is then afterwards this there's this kind of sweetness from the fruit um and that's that's the mark of if it's a good if it goes down smoothly and if it's uh the the aftertaste if you can get a fruity aftertaste but i am i am by far not a pizza drink um connoisseur <laughs> sounds good um we haven't talked about bread and I know I didn't necessarily prime you to talk about bread but just listening to all of this I'm just thinking what the bread what, what about the bread because obviously you know I love bread tell me about bread there bread is the Slovak staple it is mm. um it's the the backbone of the country really in terms of food yeah, it's not considered a Slovak food because it's not different than the rest of Europe, but mm. it's not unique to Slovakia like Brinzove uh, Halushki is. But yeah, it is like the the backbone, working backbone bone of of the country. And in fact, traditionally to guests, and, and still, if there's like an important guest comes and the government, you know, an official visit, they offer mm. bread and salt that's that's the gift that you that you offer people when they come and and every uh, any anytime you have a uh visitors or um uh some big event going on there's always they make them they call so the word for bread is chleb and the word for these open-faced sandwiches is chlebichki like these little breads uh, like a diminutive of the word bread and and you know you you can't go to any older okay let's say older person is what they always serve and it's a piece of bread butter or mayonnaise a little bit of ham um a a, a piece of some sort of vegetable so it might be like a little bit of tomato or pepper or radish or you know depends on the season and mm -hmm. uh, a pickle 
and then grated cheese, finely grated cheese over top of that. And this is, or even uh, if in the winter, even um, canned uh, peppers, like kind of canned in oil. And uh, yeah, and this is like ubiquitous and, and it's both everywhere and essential to, to Slovak food. So if, 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 if we don't have bread in the house, my husband's like, do we have bread? Like he's like, panics, panics if we, yeah, if we don't have bread. Yeah, no, I'm not that too. Um, is, is it kind of the same as what happened in the rest of Europe in that generally a whole grain bread was associated traditionally with peasantry and then because it took money and process to sift the bread, white bread was associated with aristocracy. Is that the same? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. But here, the the white, fluffy, crustless bread never took on the same popularity or acceptance as in other Western countries. Um, it's here, and people use it for toast for not for making toast, but what they call toast, like a like a sandwich, a hot sandwich. They okay. call this toasting. So you would, you know, whatever in the middle and you put it in a pot press and it, uh, yeah. this is what they call toast. I don't even know what, what the word is in English. Uh, so they use that kind of bread for that, but, but mm. generally just what people ate never became the, the fluffy, um, substanceless bread. They always had so what, bread. What's the normal, substance. what's the normal life traditionally for a Slovakian uh they've always had lots of different kinds okay sometimes um but a basic i mean a basic wheat loaf not not particularly heavy like a rye they'll they have ones mixed with rye that are heavier but not like a hundred percent like a my sister-in-law from Belarusia will bring back like these very sturdy heavy um loaves of rye bread and and they didn't do that it was it was lighter than that but yeah, so wheat and rye, um, often caraway seeds in it, which I don't particularly care for myself, um, flax seeds in it. Okay. Um, and then a lot of, for sweets, they would do a lot of yeasted doughs. So not not necessarily like bread bread, but um, various mm, desserts. I don't know what to call it. It's not a dessert. and It's more like a, for example, my mother-in-law, every, so it's a, a religious country, mm-hmm. mostly Catholic and some Protestant. And so Wednesdays and Fridays were meatless. Okay. And my mother-in-law would, and still does, uh, make a soup and then bake a yeasted something every Wednesday and Friday. My husband said it was like clockwork. like, And some sort of vegetable soup, maybe some beans in it, and, and halushki. And then, um, and the, and the, the yeasted food could be either sweet or savory. Okay. Traditionally, would it have always been kind of yeast? Did you, do you know about a time before commercial yeast? Was it yeast from kind of beer or was it sourdough? What's the tradition there? I think before commercial yeast, it would have been sourdough. But, and, and also 
well, it would have been sourdough. And, and then in recent years, sourdough has really experienced a, a resurgent here as well. Um, but in my mother-in-law's generation, nobody, nobody had sourdough, but they bought fresh yeast. It wasn't dry, yeah, but it was yeah. like fresh, fresh yeast cakes. Yeah. And, and even when you think in sweets, when someone has, for example, a wedding or they're planning an event and they want to be fancy, I guess, or, or nicer, they, mm -hmm. there's all these kinds of sweets that I've heard come more from Austria and I don't actually particularly like them to me. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit tasteless, but the, I love the traditional, like what the original Slovak sweets were. So, um, you know, it'll be a, a sweeter yeast to dough with poppy seeds or, or tomato, um, curds, cheese curds and not cheese curds. Yeah. Curds, uh, or nuts. And, uh, Sounds nice. And okay. even save, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can I can talk about yeasted Slovak yeasted uh, items for a while because there's a lot. <laughs> ah, but the other thing they do also a lot is to steam it. So there's what you bake in the oven, and then there's also buchti is buns and knedla is like a loaf shape and then you steam it and when i first came here i thought it was like raw bread i was like wow, yeah. what? <laughs> what is this white loaf here and but no it's it's steamed and then the the buns they usually eat um they often eat sweet so at my kids will get at the cafeteria like sprinkled with um Oh, they'll eat it together with jam or coconut, uh, not sorry, cocoa powder with some sugar okay. or, you know, butter, melted butter on top. But the knedla, the loaf ones, they slice it and they'll eat it warm with um, uh, a lot of kind of stewy things that at the, and then they use, it's really good for soaking. It soaks up um, juices better than, better than a baked loaf of bread. Yeah. And so I've never, I've never seen bread. Have you tried it? Um, I haven't myself. No, I've, I'm a little bit intimidated by it, but basically <laughs> I've seen my mother-in-law do it and okay. she has a, she has a quite a fairly big pot because the, these are, are truly loaf shaped. They're like a loaf of bread and, and uh, she puts over top of the pot, she ties a, um, like a muslin cloth it's yeah. thicker than a cheesecloth but she i mean usually she calls it a diaper because it's what it, what they would have used <laughs> for cloth diapers yeah, yeah and uh and she ties it so that it's the right tension you want it enough to kind of sag down a little bit over the water but enough tight enough to hold the hold the loaf and um yeah, boiling water underneath puts a lid on top, and and I have a few friends who make it because they say, of course, like what they make themselves is always better than the store. But most people buy it from the store now. I think um, I'll probably have a go at the steaming soon because I'm reading um, Dorothy Hartley's Food in England book, and there are a lot of steam puddings that are traditionally English in that book because mm -hmm. people didn't have ovens with you know yeah. doors and heat that could radiate like that. They had yeah. the fire or the hob and 
so steaming was absolutely necessary, you know, to produce a, a, a range of goods. Yeah. So there's lots of steam pudding. Oh, I never thought of that, yeah. pies and that kind of thing. So probably sometime with my experiments with this um, Food in England book, I'm going to have a go at steaming. I remember my nan steaming puddings in, um, in England when I was very, very young. And I've never tried to recreate it, but I'm, I'm probably going to give it a go. Uh, okay. Well, as as uh, the price of electricity goes up here, I will probably probably be a good idea to try try some uh, fire fire steam dishes yeah. over the fire outside. Over the fire, yeah, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see some pictures of it. I I really should try this. This is I never I didn't even think of didn't even occur to me before. So now I have something new to mm. to aim for. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't yet before we head over and into your kitchen and see you make some goodies for us? I mean, I basically I can talk about food for a long time. Okay. So then <laughs> you'll have to come back. Yeah. Um, explain, explain to people where you are and um, where your website is because there are there are some beautiful photos and lots and lots of recipes on there. Um, so tell people where they can find you. Uh, so I. I have a blog that I haven't written on for a long time, but most of the content is evergreen. So um, recipes are are good anytime. Uh, I would love to be more active there, but just it was a hobby and and uh, haven't had time recently for the amount of time that goes into it. So it's called almostbananas.net. Okay, N-E-T, net. Yeah, and uh, also on Instagram, that's where I'm most active these days, mostly in the stories. Um, yeah. Just sharing pictures of uh, daily life. And um, yeah, that's where you can find me. What's your Instagram handle? All, almost bananas. So the same. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend trying out some of Naomi's recipes. I post a lot about the um, liver pate recipe, which is now my staple liver pate recipe that I make. It's, it's written for beef. You wrote it for beef, didn't you? But I use it for my um, pork. Yeah, so well. I, I originally saw it for pork, but I had a lot of beef liver, so I used it for beef, and I was just um, shocked at how how um, how it rendered the, the it got rid of that kind of beef liver taste that people yeah. don't like. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and and I learned that from from the butcher that was. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, from the, the Slovak butcher that comes um, to my parents-in-law, came to my parents-in-law when they had a, a pig butchering. And I saw him put allspice in, and I was like, I that's that's curious. And then I, I kind of saw, like, they always have, when they do this pig butchering, they have a ton of, um, at the very beginning, they saute a bunch of onions and use it in various dishes. And I kind of watched what he did, like, okay, saute, lots of sautéed onions, the ground-up liver, uh, cooked I think their liver was cooked yeah because it's cooked in these cauldrons if you listen to the episode about the pig butchering you'll know what I'm talking yeah. about for yeah. people so it's cooked the liver is cooked in this cauldron and then he grinds it up like puts it through a, a meat grinder and and put this allspice in and I was intrigued so I tried it at home and yeah that was the result it yeah it works so that recipe is on there which I'd totally recommend and there are lots of other recipes and lovely photos. And you can actually see the landscape where you're um, living um, through your Instagram stories because you're posting yeah. a lot of landscape up there. So it, it really gives a sense of 
where you are, which is beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Well, we shall head over to your kitchen now. And um, I'm really excited to see how to make the strapachki and this lard crackling. So thank you ever so much for your time again, Naomi. And um, it's been really inspiring and educational to listen to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.